Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have on the podcast um, a, a, a good friend of mine who we originally met really virtually um, and developed, I think, a pretty close relationship on on social media. And we've known each other now for a while and seen each other several times, actually in person, uh, even with COVID going on. Evan Burnick is an assistant professor of law at Northern Illinois University. Before that, he was the executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He clerked for Judge Sykes of the Seventh Circuit. He has a BA and a JD from Chicago. He is the co-author with Randy Barnett, who was on this pod about a month ago, uh, of a really great book. And when I reviewed their book, The Left Came After Me Hard, which was somewhat traumatic, but it was a really good, it is a really good book. The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit. I recommend that book to everybody. Evan, it's great to have you on. Well, thank you very much, Eric, both for the praise and for the invitation. I have to say I've been a longtime listener to the podcast, even though it hasn't been out for all that long. <laughs> I've been hoping that you would invite me eventually. And then when you did, it made my day. So I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you. And we've and you come to Georgia State, and we've had some really fun conversations. Um, and you invited me to yeah. NIU, and we had a great conversation there, too. So we're taping this on Friday. It'll come out sometime next week. Um, uh, or this week when people start listening to it. Uh, I'm still not used to that time lag. Uh, the Supreme Court announced yesterday, Thursday, that it was going to issue opinions on Monday. Um, I don't think anybody is expecting the Dobbs opinion to come out on Monday, but you never know. Uh, but for the last month, of course, the first question I've asked all my guests, and it's the only question that I think any responsible person in this kind of world could ask, is where were you when you heard about the leak? What did you think about it? What did you think about the opinion? And what do you think is going to happen? So I was on my couch watching basketball. A great place to be. That's my that's my guy right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's usually when interesting things happen. Although yeah. in this case, uh, I first was interested, then became alarmed, then became shocked and dismayed because at some level I was preparing for a decision that would either significantly undermine or outright overrule Roe and Casey. But something in me thought that the court would not go quite as far as the draft opinion seemed to be going as I was making my way through it. The rhetoric of the opinion really struck me. It seems like a, I don't know whether it was a conscious effort, but it certainly came off as one to channel as much as possible Justice Scalia's dissent in Casey. And by the time I finished it, I had a lot of questions, both about whether what I had just read was actually what the opinion would ultimately look like and what this meant for originalism and constitutional law more generally. Yeah. Um, were you I, I thought that if it was before before Justice Roberts authenticated it, what, the next day or two days later, whenever he did it, I thought if this is a forgery, it's the best forgery in the history of forgeries, because it sure sounded like Alito, right? Yeah, from the, I mean, to be honest, it took me several paragraphs before I got done with the initial shock and yeah. recognized that, yes, this only Justice Alito could have written this opinion in this way. And the substantive analysis in which he engages very closely resembles um, his analysis in McDonald v. City of Chicago. This is the Second Amendment incorporation case. And I knew that I was looking at an Alito opinion. Yeah. So you and I initially um, uh, 
kind of met over originalism, and we're going to talk about originalism a lot you, today. You are a self-identified originalist, yet, I, I maybe I'm misreading you, I'm getting the impression you don't want Roe and Casey overturned. Is that correct? So I want to stress right from the beginning that I support reproductive freedom and reproductive justice for all people, and I regard Dobbs as an incoming moral disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, abortion is going to be illegal in more than 20 states. I support all available civil means of resistance to that state of affairs and any further efforts to um, access re- or to restrict reproductive care. Um, that being said, I'm going to try to do as much as I can to distinguish the claims that I'm prepared to make as an originalist from those that I'm prepared to make as an all things considered morally reflective citizen. Okay. And with respect to the um, uh, question about whether Dobbs can be or that uh, with respect to whether Roe can be justified on anything that could be plausibly described as originalism, I think it's I think it's very difficult. I think that Roe was probably wrongly decided. That being said, Justice Alito's case for Roe being egregiously wrong on the day that it was decided, I also find deeply unpersuasive. Um, thinking about this in terms of what I would like to have seen as an originalist. Mm-hmm. And that's because to borrow uh, from John Hart Ely's favorite, uh, famous description of Roe itself, Justice Alito's opinion is not an originalist opinion, and it shows almost no sense of obligation to be one, despite the fact that Justice Alito and Justice of the Majority identify as originalists. And I can unpack a little bit what I mean by that. Um, In thinking about... Well, before you do that, let me ask you a question. Um, Sure. So I think most originalists today agree with the following sentence. Where precedent fits in to a sincere and true originalist jurisprudence, where non-originalist precedent fits in to originalist jurisprudence, is a really hard question, right? Yeah. And I've read... Go ahead. Precedent more generally is a difficult yes. uh, problem within originalism. Okay. Uh, Justice, uh, Justice Thomas, of course, takes the position that it is sufficient that a precedent be demonstrably erroneous when evaluated with reference to the original meaning of the Constitution to overrule it. But no other justice, arguably in the history of the Supreme Court, has actually taken that view. And Justice Alito's opinion shows itself to have a sense of obligation to say more than Roe was wrongly decided. And it goes through the stare decisis factors. But I I want to ask you a question. I I, I appreciate your comment, Justice Thomas. I've given up on Justice Thomas. I think he's just a partisan monster and I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, But um, here's my question to you. Academics like yourself and Randy and and Larry Solomon and, and my friend Mike Ramsey and a bunch of other people have all given some thought to how precedent fits in. And it's tough. Mm-hmm. And there's no agreed upon unified view of how precedent fits in, how you take non-originalist precedent and put it. So let's concede for the moment that Roe is non-originalist. Mm-hmm. And let's concede that Casey is non-originalist. I know it's more complicated, but let's just concede that. If mm-hmm. there was ever a situation 
where maybe a court should say, well, we would have done this differently the first time, but this is too serious a thing for 50 years and so on and so forth, that even if we're a true originalist, Justice Gorsuch or Barrett will say that, even if I'm a true originalist, I'm not going to use that to overturn this case that defines gender equality for three generations at least of women or something like that. Is that a mm-hmm. fair way to look at this, maybe? In the abstract, yes. When you come to the concrete reality that is the very mushy factors that are used to determine whether a precedent should be overruled, I wonder, ultimately, at the end of the day, when you get into very ideologically salient Supreme Court cases in which, uh, or considering overruling them, on which justices have very committed views, whether questions like workability and reliance are all going to be ultimately determined by just how much the justice disagrees with the initial decision. And I think that by the time you get to the stare decisis factors in Justice Alito's opinion, you know exactly where he is going to go and why. And it is because, not because, of the strength of his analysis of the reliance interests or his sense of whether Roe was workable. By the way, it's really weird to criticize Roe for not being workable. Um, the three-tiered system that right. it sets up was very workable. Even the Scalia said that. Was, Scalia conceded. Even Scalia said about that. Yeah. It just had nothing to do with the Constitution. That was the criticism. Right. At any rate, um, this is an opinion that is driven by the sense that Roe was egregiously wrong on the day that it was decided. And so when I think about the degree to which I'm persuaded by Justice Alito's analysis and um, just more broadly, whether the opinion is a successful opinion in respect of what it's trying to do. And it holds itself out as at least trying to address concerns about civic peace in the aftermath of this decision by the strength of its reasoning. Justice Barrett says, you know, read our opinions so you can be confident that we're doing uh, law rather than politics. From that perspective, the case that Justice Alito makes for Roe being egregiously wrongly decided when it was decided, I think has significant limitations, even without getting into his um, discussion of the stare decisis factors, which I think has already been um, criticized, but in ways that I think is basically applicable to virtually every decision that the Supreme Court has reached about whether to overrule a prior precedent. I have nothing to add to that great answer. Um, Let's talk about originalism and abortion for a minute. Not to, and now we're going to get a little law professor. This podcast is for well-informed non-lawyers as well as lawyers and law professors. So we're going to get a little wonky here for a second. But let's talk about originalism and abortion and not Jack Balkin's originalism. So we're not, we're not, we're not Mm -hmm. the liberal originalism of Balkin and a guy named Scott Gerber and some others. We're, We're not talking about that right now. The the originalism of the justices, well, the alleged originalism of the justices, the true originalism of you and Randy and Michael McConnell and other people, um, does does it really make sense to say that the balance between a woman's role in our society, which I know you take very seriously, I know you do, I know you and you, you take that as seriously as anyone I know, a woman's role in society and the rights of the state to consider the fetus a real person, a human being deserving of, of life at almost all costs. That balance, what is there in 1868 
that could possibly, much less, you know, the 16th century or 17th century like Alito did. But what is there in 1868 when women weren't equal under the law, weren't supposed to be equal? They couldn't vote in many states. They didn't get the right to vote for 50 more years. Um, they were the property of their husbands. In your, in your state of Illinois, they couldn't be lawyers. Why would we go back there to figure out the, the significant interests a state may have in the fetus versus the significant equality interests that women have in controlling their bodies? Why go back to 1868? So the initial cut of my answer as an originalist is because in 1868, that's when the provision that you're interpreting uh, and you're trying to determine the meaning of was ratified. And so questions about how restrictions on reproductive freedom were viewed and what rights all citizens um, were understood to have, even if they were not consistently honored in practice, is a question that you want to answer if you're trying to determine what meaning was conveyed by the text to members of the public at the time the Constitution or provision was ratified. So you reject, now, I think you do reject, Will Bode and Steve Sachs and others, originalists, self-identified originalists, who suggest that maybe the 14th Amendment, maybe Lawrence and Roe and, other, and Obergefell are justifiable because those who wrote and ratified the 14th Amendment expected judges to change applications as society changes. You don't accept that characterization? So what I think that Steve and Will are doing when they're characterizing decisions like Lawrence and Obergefell as originalist decisions is that they're- Maybe originalist. To be fair to them, maybe originalist. They are not describing the results as what a you know properly executed originalist analysis would produce they're saying that in form what the court is doing when it is saying we are bound by the text of the 14th amendment and we understand the text of the 14th amendment to include a concept of liberty that um we can only appreciate all the implications of in the course of time yeah. is at least in form an originalist kind of argument of course they don't say that we believe that actually Justice Kennedy was correct to say that liberty really is that capacious or was understood to be that capacious. They're just saying the form of the argument is originalist. That being said, okay, so let's talk about the question about whether we should, how we should figure out what a given text means at the time that it's ratified. And before you do that, well, let me just throw one more thing in. I just saw, I think, an old post by Mike Rappaport about who's a true and blue originalist in every way, runs the, original, one, runs the originalism center at San Diego. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to get this point mm -hmm. out, then I'll let you speak. Mike yeah. wrote a post years ago about originalism in other countries, and he was trying to downplay the idea. A lot of anti-originalists you know, use other countries to show they don't take it seriously. And Mike said, you can't do that because in a lot of those countries, the original constitution might call for non-originalism. And if the original constitution calls for non-originalism, then doing non-originalism is doing originalism. Mike Rappaport said that. Now go yeah. ahead with your answer. 
So I agree with that. I mean, if the original meaning of a constitutional provision is best understood to communicate to the ratifying public that in the future, judges will have the ability to flesh out the concept of liberty or equality or whatever, them's the breaks. And that creates a real tension between um, originalism and any uh, notion of judicial restraints in the sense that it's going to give judges a tremendous amount of power to rule our political lives. But that's what you'd have to own as originalists. The question is whether, and you know, this is, I think, a point of disagreements both between originalists and also between originalists and critics of originalism, um, whether when you encounter a word like liberty, your first thought should be, uh, that's a really abstract concept with a bunch of contested applications, or let's determine what this particular word meant in that context over the course of the previous several decades, how courts applied it, how legislators interacted with it, what people said about it, and perhaps you can specify the meaning in a way that is less open-ended and therefore gives judges less power to develop doctrine that's constitutionally binding on the various branches of government. Are you taking the position descriptively? Not You and I often go back and forth between the descriptive and the normative on Twitter and other places, and I will confess error to sometimes merging those two things. Are you saying that, that um, descriptively originalism in this country has constrained the Supreme Court more than non-originalism? Because I don't think the record bears that out. Uh, no, I'm not saying that. Okay. And I would distinguish, however, between judicial restraints understood as a normative principle that says that judges should, if they can, avoid making a decision that locks something in constitutionally that states of the federal government from acting, um, they should do that on the one hand from the constraints that originalists prize and prioritize, which is the idea that judges should act in a way that is constrained or limited by the original meaning of the constitution, even if that original meaning gives judges a tremendous amount of power. I think that almost as a definitional matter, originalism is going to be more constraining in the sense that originalists think about constraints than non-originalist alternatives that do not try to identify original meaning at all and guide decisions in accordance with it. But that doesn't mean that originalism is more conducive to judicial restraints than forms of non-originalism. And I think that there are considerable arguments um, to the contrary. I think that it's quite plausible that if judicial restraint is what you're ultimately after, you would be better off taking an approach like the one that you've championed. This idea of Thayerian deference to legislative decisions, except in the context of criminal procedure. I know that that's an important yeah. qualification. Yeah. Um, it says unless there's a clear constitutional error um, that a branch of government has made, judges should stay their hands and not get in the way of the democratic process. If that's what you want to maximize, then originalism is probably not going to be what you want. But originalism has developed in a way and contextualized its normative ambitions in a way that have focused more attention not on limiting judges, but just trying to get the meaning of the Constitution right. 
Okay. Um, we're going to get back to abortion in a minute because um, you and Randy wrote this book about the 14th Amendment. I think you two are as scholarly on that issue as any law professors, not necessarily historians, but law professors um, around today. And I want to ask you about Congress's powers. But before we get there, um, mm-hmm. do you agree, and, and you may have no opinion on this, which is fair, do you agree with Keith Whittington, who is, who is a new originalist professor at Princeton, not a law professor, but someone who knows as much about law as any law professor ever would, a political scientist. Um, Keith wrote, uh, has written several times that the arc of originalism, one of the many arcs of originalism, is that originalism circa 1982 and the birth of the Federalist Society with Steve Calabresi, Ed Meese, Scalia, and Bork was mostly about constraint and restraint. Then we had 12 years of Reagan-Bush judges, 12 years. And by the end of that, by the time Randy Barnett came on the scene in a big way um, and some others, um, constraint and restraint were no longer important because now conservatives and libertarians, mostly, mostly in the early 90s conservatives and then libertarians came in, controlled the judiciary. So according to Keith, a self-described originalist, we needed you, originalists, needed a political theory to allow judges to have more power than they would have had under the original originalism of Meese and Bork and Calabresi. And, and if that's true, isn't that an important political statement? Yes, it is. Uh, I think it's both true and that it is an important political okay. statement and that it, frankly, if one is not a conservative or a libertarian, should make one suspicious of originalism and how it will actually hit the grounds in political practice. Um, genealogy is not destiny. Social <laughs> movements change. Methodologies are refined over the course of time. They are social artifacts and they don't have a fixed essence. Um, you know, Larry Solom's definition of originalism as something that is, uh, something that is, uh, is defined by the constraint principle and the fixation thesis, the idea that the original meaning of the constitution is fixed and that it constrains judges. Um, that was an effort to refer and, um, you know, categorize a cluster of theories at the time that had developed in ways that, you know, Bork and Scalia did not quite anticipate in any meaningful way. So movements develop, movements change, but they do have certain durable properties. Originalism is still ascendant on the right. And I think that if you are not on the right, yeah, you should be a little bit suspicious of originalism. So I want to take a brief brief pause here. I'm going to embarrass you. Sorry, but you have no choice. It's my podcast. I get to embarrass people. Um, That answer is is uh, I've had a lot of originalists on this. I've had Randy. I've had Michael McConnell. I've had the superstars of original Chris Green. I've had your friend. I've had the superstars of Keith Whittington. I've had the superstars of originalism on this. You know, law professors who've been doing it thirty years longer than you have. Since my first encounter with you, I have always found you more on not more. That's the wrong word. Strike the word more. I have you've struck me as a reflective, honest trying to get it right, not always succeeding, obviously, person involved in the originalism debates. And I really respect you for that. I need you to, I mean, I've been doing this a lot longer. I'm much, I'm twice your age or something. Um, I really respect you for that, Evan. And, and I want you to know that because it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's a, it's a big deal. And, and, and um, you're going places is all I can say on that because of that talent of yours. 
Um, well, I appreciate that. And I don't want to suggest that I speak for originalists no, in I telling that story. But then again, Keith Whittington told it first. And <laughs> I am just basically agreeing with him. Yes, but but you'd be surprised how much pushback I get back. Yeah. Now, yeah. Anyway, you, I, you, think I think people are going to really enjoy this conversation in terms of its freshness. Not that I didn't love talking to McConnell and Randy and everybody else. I did. Mm-hmm. All right. So let, let's go to you. Now, you just wrote a book with Randy on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. It's letter and spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, I've criticized your letter and spirit approach, and we don't have to get into that right now. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I haven't criticized it. I thought it, it's descriptively 100% accurate. I just don't think it's originalism. Mm-hmm. But leaving that aside, I've been getting questions from the, from the media, from journalists, a lot of journalists, from Twitter. What, what if Congress either tried to protect abortion on a national basis through its powers under either the Commerce Clause or Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, or... Or Congress tries to make abortion illegal in blue, either makes it legal in red states or illegal in blue states, whatever whatever you want to do it. Um, Do you think Congress has that power? If they do have that power, under what provision does it? I know it's a broad question. Does it depend how the statute is drafted? What what is your feeling on federal intervention in the abortion wars once Roe and Casey are gone? So I'm going to focus my attention on the Reconstruction Amendments because that's what I have studied most extensively, okay. not the Commerce Clause. Okay. I do think that as a descriptive matter and what the court is likely to do, it would have more difficulty striking down under the Commerce Clause an effort to protect reproductive freedom than it would uh, striking down an effort to protect it under the 14th or 13th Amendments because of the way that it has frankly, gutted congressional enforcement of the Reconstruction Amendment specifically and only slightly limited Congress's Commerce Clause powers, although spending is a different situation. Um, So with respect to the 14th Amendments, how what would justify an effort to protect reproductive rights under the 14th Amendment? Or or fetuses, either one, pick either side. Okay, right. So exactly. Um, Under the logic of the court's opinion in Dobbs, Uh, No chance under the 14th Amendment because there is no underlying right to protect in the first place. Right. Any such effort is going to get struck down under Bernie on the ground that Congress doesn't have the power to say that what the Supreme Court says are not rights protected by the 14th Amendment are, in fact, protected by the 14th Amendment. So that's not going to happen. As a matter of original meaning, I would have to be convinced that the 14th Amendment includes under the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, um, sec- uh, the first uh, operative substantive rights guaranteeing provision in Section 1, um, a right that could e- that either directly encompassed or was necessary and proper to the protection of the right to terminate a pregnancy. And nothing in my research suggests that such a right or such an adjacent right exists. Um, I do think that there is a plausible story that one can tell about uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause and abortion that makes um, restrictions on pre-quickening abortion constitutionally questionable, but I don't think that I am in a position to confidently say there is a right guaranteed by the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment to terminate a pregnancy as a matter of original meaning. 
Um, and to that extent, does Congress have the ability to say, well, nonetheless, we think that there is such a right, or we think that that right is adjacent to some right that um, is definitely uh, in, protected by the 14th Amendment, like the right to be uh, treated in a non-discriminatory way if one is a citizen. Um, I think that in cases of reasonable constitutional disagreement with the Supreme Court concerning the precise scope of a constitutional right, the original meaning of Section 5 of the 14th Amendment empowers Congress to do things to recognize and protect rights that a court wouldn't on its own initiative. And to that amen, extent, I by think the way, amen to that. Go ahead. <laughs> it can't create rights out of nothing, which is why I'm being careful in yeah. not suggesting that Congress definitely does have the power to protect reproductive rights under the 14th Amendment. Even if Congress genuinely believes that, if the court were to come to the conclusion that there's just no basis in original meaning for such a right, and there's no um, appropriate relation between what Congress has done and anything guaranteed by the original meaning of the Constitution, I would have to say that's a correct decision. But in cases of uncertainty, if there's room for doubt one way or the other about whether Congress has this power, I think the original meaning of the 14th Amendment is a Congress-empowering meaning that allows it to take the lead in defining civil rights. And to that extent, I think it would be a big mistake for proponents of reproductive rights not to make 14th Amendment-based arguments in seeking to enact legislation to protect them. So two things. Uh, first, as I mentioned this to Randy when he was on here, your book basically you know, says what you just said. Um, not about abortion, but in general about the, the scope of congressional power being much greater than the Supreme Court thinks it is. And as I said mm -hmm. to Randy, and I'll say it to you, um, you know, that was quite a conclusion for you guys to reach, given Randy's long stated federalism priors and given his distrust and distaste. I think that's a fair mm -hmm. characterization of Congress for him to admit that he would give yeah. Congress more power. You're not you're not on record so much as he is. Um, on this issue, to, to, to give Congress, it was really a, one of the things I loved about your book um, was you reached a conclusion that I know is inconsistent with Randy's priors, and maybe yours, I don't know, but definitely Randy's, and that's impressive, like, not, that's, yeah. I really respected that, and I want to say that to you, and I, that's, that's really important. W my question about abortion is, why, I think this is, I think maybe this is less complicated than people are making it. Justice Rehnquist, of all people, wrote an opinion saying that there is a constitutional right, based on history, to refuse unwanted medical treatment for all of us, mm -hmm. if you're a competent adult. When you say rights adjacent, that was your phrase, I think, rights adjacent, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be that hard to say, well, we disagree about the fetus and we disagree about whether it's a human or not and all that. But one thing we all agree on is people have a right to control the, the medical events of their body. All people have that right. Justice Rehnquist told us that in, 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 mm -hmm. in the cases. That's historically based. And Congress could use that as a jumping off point to say we're protecting that right. Yeah, unless we're talking about another constitutional person. Yes. That yes. either the Constitution requires 
Congress and the states to protect or gives them the space to do so such that Congress can't legislate in a way that doesn't sufficiently take into account the value of fetal life. And again, I have not done sufficient research to make a confident claim about fetal personhood as a constitutional proposition. Okay. Uh, But I do know that Justice Alito's opinion does leave considerable space for Congress to act in ways that are consistent with the premise that fetuses are constitutional persons. The distinction between rights that involve fetal life and rights that don't is all over the opinion. It's a reason that Justice Alito cites for saying, don't worry about this whole line of substantive due process cases involving Griswolds, um, which is uh, married couples using contraceptives, Eisenstadt, unmarried couples using contraceptives, Lawrence, that same-sex intimacy. Don't worry about those cases. They don't involve fetal life. Well, why is fetal life so important? Well, it might have something to do with the Constitution in a future case. And if that's so, then Congress is going to have considerable power to constitutionally act to protect fetal life. And if that's true, then personhood protection at the federal level is a real constitutional possibility. So I, I um, that's a great answer. I, I want to be clear to my audience, this I'm not speaking for you now, that we, if we come to it, I mean, I don't know if there are bigger critics of the Supreme Court than I am. Maybe there are. There, there, are, older, there are older ones, Mark Tushnet, Larry Kramer, but I'm not sure there are any stronger ones than I am. Um, if we ever get to a world where, 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 the, where the Congress tries to protect reproductive rights when it comes to abortion, we're not getting to that world anytime soon, but, or, or blue states like New York and California do, and the Supreme Court comes in and says, sorry, New York, Sorry, California, you're not allowed to have abortion illegal in your state because fetuses are constitutionally um, are, are constitutional persons for whom they get the due process, equal protection, whatever provision you want. Um, I, I, I will. I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting violence, and I'm not suggesting illegality. But I am suggesting going to the streets and 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 having the chaos of civil disobedience legal civil disobedience as great. Nothing could make me angry. There's no, no, no issue, nothing that would make me angrier than the court not allowing a legislature to protect reproductive rights. You want to react to that? You don't have to, but I, that's my position. You're here. I agree with everything that you just said. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's move on because um, you and I have both, either for better or for worse, I can't decide yet. I'm still in the process of deciding if it's better or for worse have been wrestling with um, Professor Adrian Vermeule of Harvard Law School. Um, and the only reason, and I want to I be very clear why I'm bringing this up, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast too. Um, to me, he was kind of another academic, writing academic stuff. I thought his critiques of originalism and formalism were great. His defense of the administrative state were great. Um, his common good constitutionalism leads to horrific results in same-sex marriage and gay rights and abortion. But I thought it was all inside baseball academic stuff. And then I go to Cincinnati for a Federalist Society debate, not with a law professor, but with a really smart lawyer who I loved, by the way, um, uh, moderated by Judge John Bush of the Sixth Circuit. I don't love quite as much, but um, it was a great crowd. There were lawyers there. There were students there. It was a really mixed crowd of different people. And they all wanted to talk about Vermeule. And I thought, law students? Really? 
like lawyers, really busy lawyers who are just there because they're part of the Federal Society, you know, lawyers club, coming to have a good time and have a drink and listen to two guys debate originalism. They want to hear about Adrian Vermeule? That got me scared. And then we have Professor Schwartzman from UVA, who I've met once, I don't know personally very well, who gets mad at me every time on Twitter. I say anything remotely nice about Vermeule's originalism critiques. You have been wrestling with him a lot, and you, I think, are in, are in um, Micah's camp, Professor Schwartzman's camp, right? You yes. want him to go away. I think most originalists want him to go away. What do you find so offensive? And so and, and, and is, that, is that a fair way of describing your views? I, I can work with that. Okay. So I want to start by saying that I don't personally have anything against sure. Adrian Vermeule. Sure. I've devoured his scholarship since I really started becoming interested in legal scholarship to begin with. There's practically no field of public law from constitutional law, administrative law to statutory interpretation that he hasn't written on and really thrived in writing on. He's got an incredible mind and he writes lucidly and clearly. I've never met him in person, but he's always been nice to me. He knows that we disagree about everything. He hasn't important. blocked you. He's blocked everybody else. He's not blocked me. Okay. Uh, did he did. We did get into a Twitter dispute, and I said something that I regarded with hindsight as a cheap shot. I sent him an apology, yeah. and he graciously accepted it. And yeah. He even sent me a photo of a puppy in response because he knows how <laughs> to um, All of that being said, here's. That's the wind up. Here's the pitch. I think the single most important thing for listeners to know about Adrian Vermeule and common good constitutionalism is not that Adrian Vermeule is brilliant or that he's nice to Evan Burnick. It's that he's an integralist who wants to subordinate the state to the Catholic Church and that common good constitutionalism is for him a means to that end. More than that, he wants church and state to be so integrated, hence integralism, that they're practically indistinguishable. And with your permission, I'm just going to quote him here from an article that he wrote in 2018. Here's the quote. Catholics deny that liberalism has any best self to which it might somehow be recalled. They work within a liberal order towards the long-term goal, not of reaching a stable accommodation with liberalism, even in a baptized form, but rather with a view to eventually superseding it altogether as a stage towards the integral restoration of Christendom. That is, Catholics are to work for the common good in the current unideal framework of a state that does not recognize the superiority of spiritual over temporal authority, hoping that this would lead eventually to a restoration of an integrally Catholic state. That's the end of the quote. That's scary. (laughs) Now, if you read his book, Common Good Constitutionalism, you won't see anything about right, integralism. Right. There's nothing in there about I, re- I reviewed the book. There was nothing in there about that. Nothing about integralism. But I want to give you an analogy here uh, to illustrate the concern that I have about common good constitutionalism in light of what I have just said. Suppose I told you that I had an amazing constitutional theory that should be adopted by public officials. And I told you that I was a Trotskyist and I wanted to do my part to promote a world revolution in favor of communism. And I told you that I had an enormous Twitter following composed largely of Trotskyists. And then I said, I think political morality is inescapable from constitutional adjudication. And then I gave you a book called Solidarity Constitutionalism. (laughs) And I never said anything about a world revolution. But I do say that judges should make decisions with an eye to promoting solidarity. And I define solidarity in a way that seems 
kind of reasonable. Wouldn't you be a little bit worried that whatever my intentions are in writing a book that doesn't mention Trotskyism, my theory is going to lend itself to Trotskyism in practice? Well, that's exactly what Professor Schwartzman keeps yelling, yelling. You can't yell on Twitter, but yelling at me on Twitter about. Uh, and I've, I, by the way, I have deep respect for Professor Schwartz. He's a great law professor, writes great stuff. And he and I agree on 99.9% of things in the world. Um, mm -hmm. But he keeps saying that. And then I ask him this question, which he has yet to answer. So I'll ask you this mm -hmm. question. So even given what you just said, what if there are parts of your book on Trotsky, you know, that, that's leading to Trotskyism, even though you don't say it out loud, that mm -hmm. are really good and really important? And let me be very specific. And I think liberals have have lost this in this discussion about Vermeule. He absolutely, and I know this may be inconsistent with your priors, but, but, but we're talking about liberals now, not you. Um, his view is that any restrictions on the administrative state are basically ridiculous. And more importantly, we need today the EPA and the federal government to fight climate change. And if we don't fight climate change, none of this matters. We can talk about Trotsky and Catholics and abortion to, to, the, you know, to the end of days, but we're going to get to the, to the end of days before we get to those issues. And he, a liberal, could not be happier. A non-libertarian mm -hmm. liberal afraid of climate change mm -hmm. could not be happier with that part of his jurisprudence. In addition to an anti-originalist or non-originalist or originalist critic or whatever like me, because he's so smart and such a good writer, such a clear mm -hmm. writer, his critiques of originalism are understandable by non-professor. I've tried to do this myself. He's just smarter than I am mm -hmm. and a better writer than I am. They're so devastating, To I think. I don't, I don't want to debate that, but I, I think his critique mm -hmm. of originalism is devastating. Can't we separate it out? Say that's terrible, but this is good? Mm -hmm. So I think it's very difficult to do that in practice. And the reason is because the framework itself is so dependent upon the position that political morality is always, always, not just in hard cases, relevant to constitutional interpretation. And the political morality in question, if not specifically Adrian Vermeule's, because not all of his followers are integralists, but it's going to be anti-liberal. <laughs> yeah. They think Adrian and his followers believe that liberalism is a lie about human nature and about political society. And and what I, makes I, human I, let's be clear. Political. When you say liberalism, you're not talking about liberals or political. No. You're no, you no, mean, just describe the philosophical I mean, theory you're talking about. No, I'm referring to a political order in which certain basic liberties are protected, but yeah. people are given space by the state to pursue their vision of the good life so long as they leave others the space to do the same very broadly. Yeah. Um, in Adrian's uh, picture and in the picture of a lot of people who are attracted to uh, common good constitutionalism, I would say the dominant voices within it is a movement in the same way that conservatives... Um, who are liberal in the sense that I've just described are dominance within originalism, right. um, believe that liberalism is a lie. It's not neutral between competing theories of the good life. It's hostile to religion, and it ought to be destroyed for the sake of human flourishing. And because that's the case, in the foreseeable future, regardless of what I think progressives could 
possibly do to repurpose common good constitutionalism in the future for their ends. Um, it's going to hit the ground in a way that's going to be put into practice by people who believe that blasphemy is not protected by the First Amendment, to say nothing of pornography, that states are required by the 14th Amendment to prohibit abortion, that the federal government can prioritize, as Vermeule has called for, the admission of Catholic immigrants, and that the administrative state should play an active role in realizing an illiberal substantive vision. And any engagements with Vermeule's common good constitutionalism, I think should have that in the backdrop, which isn't to say that you can't, as you have, highlighted aspects of his critique of um, originalism, although I disagree about how profound it is, sure. um, that are valuable. And I might not go f as far as Micah in front-loading the um, uh, the commitments that Vermeule has to integralism in every conversation that we might have about them. Uh, however, I do think that it's a legitimate thing to think about in discussing common good constitutionalism. I do not think that you should say that's off limits because Vermeule in common good constitutionalism doesn't talk about it or because those who support it think that it's an ad hominem to attach um, Vermeule's commitments to an entire theory that is believed in by people who do not agree with everything that Vermeule says. He's an incredibly influential voice within this community. Influential people within it agree with him, and those that don't agree with him on enough that I think people who are progressive should be concerned about how this would hit the ground. I think that's totally fair. I want to push. We're running. I could talk to you all day. We have talked all day together, but um, this has to end. <laughs> this has to end at some point. But um, yeah. I, I want to do a deep dive into. What you, I want to end this podcast um, at a very high level of generality, which is a good place to end it. I think, um, and it brings together kind of your work and and his work and my work and um, and I, I think this is a fair question. But tell me if you think it's not, as you always do when I do that. Um, so for someone like me. Uh, or the former dean of Stanford Law School, Larry Kramer, or Harvard Law School emeritus, um, Mark Tushnet, or Jeremy Waldron at NYU, or Brian Leiter, who was on my pod last week from the University of Chicago. For all of us, and of course many more, but, but we're, I think, the most outspoken. I may have left somebody out. What we all think so strongly is that one of the, I mean, this country has so many problems right now, you know, where this is on the hierarchy is, has fallen since the reign of Trump. But a real big problem this country has always had is that the court is not, my, the way I phrase it is the court is not a court. Waldron and Kramer and Tushnet might not say that, but they would say, Tushnet did say, law is politics all the way down. Um, I agree with Vermeule that political theory is behind all of constitutional law. I'm not talking, I mean, Tushnet would say it's behind real estate law and, and securities law. I'm not, I don't know enough about that to say. But what I'm telling you is my study of the Supreme Court from 1803 to today is that that institution, I don't mean politics in the partisan sense. You know what I mean by it. Values, writ large, ideology is in fact what the Supreme Court has always been about, is always going to, I mean, it just is. And if you and I had a job for life with unreviewable power, we would act the same way. So my question, so, so, and you know I feel all that. 
But it's not just me. I mean, there's some famous people who feel that way too. I don't think Vermeule's common good constitutionalism is a threat to anything because, for, frankly, Catholics are still a minority. It's a serious minority. They have a lot of power, but they're sort of Jews. They're a minority in this country. We're not heading towards a... Um, I hate what the Roberts Court is doing with religion, but we're not heading towards a Catholic government, and we're not heading to a place, despite Justice Thomas's wishes, where Georgia can say we're a Catholic state, we're a Christian state, whatever. Catholicism isn't that powerful. But it is his views, according to you and according to Mika and most other people, on abortion and same-sex marriage and gay rights and the integration of church and state are offensive. They're so offensive that to beat it, you need a political theory. And all of all, you can't just go originalism, it's wrong. No, that's not going to work. You need values. You need a political theory. And that's what we should be arguing about, political theory, not um, what happened in 1868, not what happened in 1789, especially given the, whole, the lack of deference, the lack of deference that now exists within originalism circles. So my, so the, the big, long, big question there is, sh- can't he perform a, 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 an important need in showing that, yes, political theory really is all there is when it comes to constitutional law? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think that's true that even if you're a hardcore realist, I think that's true even if you're a hardcore realist. Okay. I think the best understanding of legal realism is basically a, a positivist one. So positivists, very broadly, they hold that what the law is is a function of socially recognized sources of authority. You don't need to, and on some accounts of positivism, you absolutely cannot rely upon political morality to determine what the law is. Now, the realists said that the law doesn't explain what judges do in hard cases. In hard cases, nothing that we can fairly call law produces clear answers, and no methodology can help you. And then political morality is going to tell you what to do. For Adrian, it's all political morality, all the way down, all the time, and it's his political morality. That doesn't mean that in every case you're thinking about how to promote the common good, but what you are doing in every case is looking to general principles of natural law in order to understand the meaning of positive law, always, every time. And if that's true, there are just no easy cases in which you can say what the law is without recourse to political morality and his specific form of political morality. None. And I think that's wrong. I think that even when you get to the appellate level, the level at which the realists said there are only hard cases, you can find some easy cases that have clearly correct answers by the lights of particular constitutional okay, methodologies. But those cases don't but that's that 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 those cases don't make the New York Times. We don't talk about those cases most of the time. I know I know that um you've been talking about uh fish and you know uh, a statutory interpretation case out of Cal. But generally speaking, yeah. all we're talking about here are hard cases. And shouldn't, can't we use him to show, we don't like his morality, but he is right that it's all about morality. So two things about that. The first is that there are easy cases only because we reject the premise that he holds that in every case, we need to rely upon political morality to 
determine what the answer to a legal question is. So the universe in which political morality becomes relevant suddenly becomes even more expansive than it currently is. Are you sure he's saying that? Are you, are you sure he's saying that? Every case, no matter what? Every case you are interpreting positive law, which is lex, right. in light of natural law and the customs of civilized nations, which is use. Every time. Okay. Because law as law comes from sources of legitimate authority, and sources of legitimate authority ultimately have a grounding in what he understands to be moral reality. I don't think that he thinks that you can understand positive law without reference to natural law. Interesting. The, the extent that that's true, I do think that the universe of cases in which we're relying upon political morality is broader, that the Supreme Court, as much attention as we put on it, and as sympathetic as I am to the claim that it does act functionally as a super legislature, as Brian Leiter has argued, um, across wide areas of law, is not the only court in town. And that even when we're thinking about the Supreme Court, like, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to this argument that this really isn't a gigantic threat in terms of, like, it's not very likely that we're going to get um, a bunch of judges who are common good constitutionalists that are wielding significant power in the United States. But at the margin, is this argument like for mules, the idea that law is in not just hard cases, but what we would call easy cases, political morality in the final analysis, uh, uh, capable of making a difference in a case that involves the question of whether the 14th Amendment actually prohibits abortion. I think that's actually not an unrealistic possibility. Yeah. Well, that was an excellent answer and a depressing one, as many excellent answers usually are, uh, as, I, as I've learned through my 65 podcasts or so, whoever it's been. I find myself getting most m more depressed over what I find to be persuasive answers than <laughs> what I find to be unpersuasive answers. Um, so I, I, this whole common good constitutionalism, I'm still wrestling with. I think people are going to be wrestling with for a while, but I do think it's going to fade I think you don't think so. Uh, I I want to say one more thing yeah. about common good constitutionalism, sure. Sure. just while we're at it. Yeah, like debate me um, if Adrian or Connor Casey or any number of common good constitutionalists that have I think justly accused non-common good constitutionalists of misrepresenting their points of view or not accurately understanding what they have said. I'm glad to talk about it. I'm glad to debate it. I'm glad to have that conversation. And, and that's a great point, Evan. So that, um, they're all great points. That's a great point. So Evan has, I mean, Evan, you're Evan. Uh, Adrian hasn't blocked me. Um, and I did write a very favorable review of his book, but we have a pretty good relationship. I talked to him privately. Um, I have asked him to come on this. He He's the only person. I'm proud to say, who has refused to come. I'm proud to say this because other people have said yes. He's the only person I've ever – people have said not now, next month. He'll call me in two months. But he's the only person who has 
flatly refused to come on this podcast. And my understanding is he doesn't really engage with anyone on live very often. And in fact, I was part of a Fordham Law and Religion panel on him mm-hmm. with um, some very highfalutin people. Um, and he refused to come on that. So I think, and he was invited. So uh, Jim Fleming from Florida, from, you know, Jim, uh, from BU. Jim Fleming is a wonderful person and a great law professor. I know he's an anti-originalist, mm-hmm. but he's, he, he, hang, he hangs out with you guys, um, or used to. Um, yeah. You know, Jim's a real guy, and he wouldn't come, and, and, and Adrian wouldn't come on. So I agree with that last point 1,000%. Get out there yeah, and debate. Res- yeah, and respectfully, I don't think that kind of thing is okay. Yeah. Like the results of continually um, articulating your perspective only to people who are likely to already agree with you and interacting with people who are committed to your basic premises um, is just not ideal from my perspective of what an academic should be doing. Um, If you have a compelling idea that is attracting a lot of followers and is going to have political consequences if ever put into practice, um, you should be on the road prepared to sit down and discuss it with people who are worried about the consequences of what you're saying and aren't convinced by your arguments, rather than just by people who believe that everything that you've said is basically right. Really well said. And I want to say for very selfish reasons, um, since I started this podcast during COVID, um, I, I've often thought about giving it up because it feels, it really does feel self-indulgent. I'm not just saying that. It feels self-indulgent. The reason I've continued it is so I can have on the record for the world to see discussions with people like Michael McConnell, Randy Barnett, Jennifer Mascott, Evan Burnick, people with whom I disagree on probably more than 50% of things but are willing to sit down and in good faith and with civility hash it out. Now, that's not to say I don't have friends and, you know, Mike Dorf and stuff on this pod. Um, but I've had most of the Vala conspiracy. I've had, you know, I've had Adler and Green and, um, and that's what makes this fun for me. And I don't understand Adrian's perspective on this. I want, I get smarter talking to you people. You people meaning, you know, <laughs> the originalists with whom I disagree. I get smarter. He could, re- I don't mm-hmm. understand why he doesn't want to do that. I really don't. I think we all generally get smarter by talking to one another. So I, you know, again, this is not anything personal against him. He's always been nice to me. But I do think that I think this is a legitimate problem. Okay, Evan, we we ran over time. Thank you so much for doing this. I love talking to you. I always have. um, And I hope we get to see each other in person sometime soon. Absolutely, Eric, and I look forward to doing so. I'm sure we'll interact on Twitter probably within the next couple of hours if I know our (laughs) Thanks, Evan. Really appreciate it. Take care. Absolutely. Take care.